Hi friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Sam Miller. We are on episode four of the People You Should Know series. We've covered Ma Rainey, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and two weeks ago we covered Hattie McDaniel. This week we're focusing on someone who I really admire, and who might be familiar to you, might not. Um, but it's someone who, in my opinion, does not get nearly enough credit for the work that they've done in their career. And in case you're new, that's the point of this series, to bring attention to those in entertainment and pop culture who haven't received the credit or attention that they deserve. For today's episode, we'll be discussing legendary comedian Gilda Radner, who you might know from being one of the original cast members of Saturday Night Live. As always, we'll discuss her life, her career, and her legacy. And I want to go ahead and give a quick content warning, as there are some conversations that might not be suitable for all audiences. So if you think that might be applicable to you, go ahead, click off, and listen to another episode. No offense taken. If this sounds interesting to you, make sure that you stick around, and we'll be right back after this short break. Let's first get into her early life. Gilda Susan Radner was born on June 28, 1946, in Detroit, Michigan. Her parents were both Jewish. Henrietta Radner was her mother, who worked as a legal secretary, and her father, Herman Radner, worked as a businessman. And Radner was really close with her father, who was the operator of the Seville, I think I said that right, maybe butchered it, I don't know, hotel, which was known to host a lot of performers and entertainers and actors, and the two would go to New York together to watch Broadway shows, and they had a pretty inseparable bond. Growing up in Detroit, she was watched by a nanny for most of her childhood, someone she nicknamed Dibby, who would serve as the inspiration for one of her future characters. She also had an older brother, Michael, and the two of them grew up in a fairly privileged childhood, at least seemingly. One thing that Radner opens up about in her autobiography, It's Always Something, is that she battled with a variety of eating disorders throughout her childhood and even into adulthood. And at the age of 10, her mother took her to a doctor where she was prescribed diet pills. When she was 12 years old, her father developed a brain tumor, which left him bedridden and unable to communicate for two years before his death in 1960. Radner attended high school at the University Leggett High School, I think I said that right, in Detroit. And this was considered a really exclusive, hard to get into school. It wasn't one that just anybody could attend. After graduating high school in 1964, Radner was accepted to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where she studied education. This next part (laughs) is one that is frustrating, but if she hadn't done this, who knows what she would have became. She probably would have been a teacher, but in her senior year of college, she dropped out of school to follow her boyfriend, Jeffrey Rubinoff, to Toronto. For most people, I would be like, girly pop, just finish school, what are you doing? But while in Toronto, she was able to start her professional acting career in a 1972 production of Godspell, which included some future very famous people, including Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Martin Short, and Paul Schaefer. Shortly after, she joined the Second City Comedy Troupe, also in Toronto, and from here, she then became a featured player on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which included some very familiar faces, who she'd see again in just a little bit, including Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, and John Belushi. 
just to name a few. By 1975, she had grown a reputation as being a strong comedian and writer, and was getting nationwide attention for her abilities. And because of this, she was the first ever cast member of a new sketch comedy show known as Saturday Night Live. She was one of the original Not Ready for Primetime players. Unlike many cast members on the show, Bradner wrote, or at least co-wrote, pretty much all of the material that she performed, regularly working with Alan Zwiebel, who was a staff writer on the show. Together, they would work to create reoccurring characters for Radner. And one way to really kind of like stamp yourself in SNL Hall of Fame is to have a reoccurring easily identifiable character. Something that when people think of you, that's kind of like what they go to. And Radner was able to do just that. Between 1975 and 1980, Radner created a variety of characters, most notable being Roseanne Rosetta Dana, the over-the-top advice expert, and Baba Wawa, who is a play on Barbara Walters. And Radner was the first on the show to poke fun at news anchors, and it's something that is still done on the show regularly today almost 50 years later. She also created the character Emily Latella, who was based on her nanny, Dibby. Like all SNL cast members, Radner had a handful of celebrity impersonations in her arsenal, including Lucille Ball, Olga Corbett, and Patti Smith. In 1978, Radner won an Emmy for her work on the show. She was up against fellow cast member Jane Curtin, and in the actor category, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and John Belushi, we're all up for an Emmy as well, but Radner was the only solo winner that year. If you know anything about the dynamic of Saturday Night Live in the first five years, there was a tension between Chevy Chase and the rest of the cast, and often John Belushi and the rest of the cast, particularly female cast members. By tension, I mean ego through the roof into the next building for Chase and sexism for Belushi. Chase believed himself to be exponentially superior to the rest of the cast. He was booking leading roles in films, and therefore he believed that that was grounds for a superiority complex. For Belushi, he made it very apparent that he didn't think women had a place in comedy at all, um, but he made an exception for Radner. And a lot of the cast have given testimony <laughs> to getting in arguments with Belushi and Chase for their attitude and their actions, and I don't want to get too much into those two since they're not the main focus of this episode and there's already a lot about them, but it's just important to know. According to fellow cast member Jane Curtin, Belushi would often refuse to do a sketch if he knew it was written by a woman, but would always respect Radner, stating he thought Gilda was funny, but he didn't classify her as a woman. She was Gilda. The cast from the first five seasons of SNL have nothing but positive things to say about her, and that serves as a testament to the kind of person she was on and off camera. And it's one thing to get the attention of the fans for being loving or caring on camera, but it's another and more truly indicative of the kind of person you are to get the attention of the cast and crew for the same thing when the cameras aren't rolling. Fellow cast member Lorraine Newman states she was the one who organized birthday parties for the cast and made cookies for the crew. During her time on the show, Radner also had a relationship with fellow cast member Bill Murray, and while not much is known about this relationship, it apparently did not end well. Recently, Murray has had good things to say about her, which is a good thing. In 2016, in an interview with Jimmy Kimmel, 
Murray states that he's always admired her confidence when it comes to auditioning and interviewing for different jobs. And in an interview with The Guardian, he stated, Gilda was an extraordinary and spectacular person. I never enjoyed making anyone laugh more than her. Never. Like many in entertainment in the 1970s, drugs played a huge role behind the scenes at SNL. Gilda was only one of three original cast members who did not turn to drugs, cocaine specifically, to help her deal with stress, but she did turn to disordered eating. Like previously mentioned, Radner struggled with eating disorders throughout most of her life, and this did not go on pause while she was at SNL. She accounts struggling with bulimia during her time on the show, and that she was never interested in drugs because she had food. She accounts nights where she would invite fellow cast member Newman over to her apartment, and she would binge and purge while Newman would partake in heroin. Towards the end of her SNL run in 1979, Fred Silverman, the incoming NBC president, reached out to Radner to offer her her own primetime variety show, but she turned down the offer, deciding to stick with SNL creator Lauren Michaels to finish out the rest of her term. This offer forever impacted the relationship between Michaels and Silverman. One interesting thing to know is that in that same year, she was asked to give a commencement speech to the graduating class at Columbia University's School of Journalism, and she did so as Roseanne Rosanna Dana. Again, in that same year, Michaels worked to create a one-woman Broadway show for Radner titled Gilda Radner Live from New York, which included material that NBC would not allow to be featured on television. While working on this production, she met her first husband, G.E. Smith, and they'd be married the following year. In 1980, Radner, with the rest of the original cast of SNL, parted ways from the show to work on other projects. After SNL, Radner acted in the play Lunch Hour alongside Sam Walterson, and the show ran through the fall of 1980 through the spring of 1981 and was praised by critics. Radner had a short run in film, but according to Newman, she didn't think directors knew how to cast Radner in roles that were able to showcase her abilities. She stated, The specific nature of her talent was she did characters, and she probably would have been better served if she had taken part in writing the things that she did but I don't think it occurred to her. If she and Alan Zwiebel had collaborated on a feature, it might have been a whole different thing. However, one good thing to come from her film career was her meeting her second husband, Gene Wilder, who you might know from one of his most famous roles as Willy Wonka in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The two met on the set of the film Hanky Panky from 1982, and Radner describes their meeting as love at first sight. The two worked together on two more movies, the Woman in Red from 1984, the same year that they got married, and Haunted Honeymoon in 1986. Around the time she was working on Haunted Honeymoon, she began experiencing severe fatigue and pain in her legs, and during this time she had been consulting a variety of doctors to try to figure out what was wrong. Details of her eating disorders were included in a book about SNL, which gained a lot of media attention. She saw doctors for 10 months, mostly in LA, who gave her a variety of diagnoses, but none of them were accurate. The book was released during those 10 months, along with the release of Haunted Honeymoon, which was by all classifications a box office failure, grossing at only $8 million in the United States. On October 21st, 1986, Radner was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer and had to undergo immediate surgery. And from at that point, she began chemotherapy, and she writes about in her book that it caused her extreme physical and emotional pain. The National Enquirer wrote a story following her diagnosis without even asking her or anyone around her. They published that she was dying. 
Radner cites again in her book that this ordeal was devastating to her and her family and friends. Wilder made a press release stating that Radner was doing well after her surgery and diagnosis, and because this wasn't the story the National Enquirer wanted to hear, they pulled the story. In 1988, Radner went into remission and was featured as a guest on a variety of shows. In the spring of 1988, she was scheduled to be a host on SNL, making her the first female former cast member to host the show, but the writers went on strike, forcing the show's production to shut down before the end of the season. On December of that same year, she learned that her cancer had returned, and on May 17, 1989, she was admitted to the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA to undergo a CT scan. She fell into a coma while she was there, where she died three days later on May 20th, 1989, with Wilder by her side. The 1989 cast and crew of Saturday Night Live learned of Radner's passing while host Steve Martin was working to prepare for that night's season finale. All original plans for the show's monologue were scrapped, and the episode was devoted to honoring Gilda. Her first husband wore a black armband throughout the show, and Martin's monologue was replaced with a clip of Radner in a 1978 sketch where he and Radner parried Fred Astaire in Dancing in the Dark. He, visibly upset, stated to the audience and the rest of the country watching the show, She was great, and I looked so young. Gilda, we miss you. Gilda Radner's legacy is one that is undeniable, and it extends beyond just her comedy career. Wilder established the Gilda Radner Hereditary Cancer Program, which is for high-risk patients to run basic diagnostic tests. Her death also increased awareness for early detection of ovarian cancer, especially through connections of familial epidemiology, as Radner's grandmother, aunt, and cousin all died from ovarian cancer. In 1991, Gilda's Club was created, which was a clubhouse where those living with cancer and their families could learn how to live with cancer, founded by both Wilder and Joanna Bull, who was Radner's cancer psychotherapist. As of 2012, there are more than 20 affiliates of Gilda's Club across the U.S. and Canada, and while some have renamed, the purpose of the group remains the same. In 1990, she won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word or Non-Musical Recording for her audio recording of her book, It's Always Something. In 1992, she was inducted into the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame for her achievements. In 2002, a three-hour television special, Gilda Radner's Greatest Moments, was featured on ABC, hosted by former SNL cast member Molly Shannon, and included several of Radner's friends and co-stars, from Steve Martin and Eugene Levy, to Kermit the Frog. On June 27, 2003, which was my third birthday, by the way, Radner received her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, hosted again by Molly Shannon and Lorraine Newman, Bull and Radner's brother Michael, were all present to accept the honor. Additionally, a portion of Houston Street in New York City, Lombard Street in Toronto and Chester Avenue in White Plains, New York, have all been renamed Gilda Radner Way. In 2007, she was featured in Making Trouble, which was a film tribute to female Jewish comedians produced by the Jewish Women's Archive. Her work as a comedian has paved the way for women in comedy, not just on SNL, but in a variety of avenues. To have a seat at the table, produce award-winning comedy specials, television shows, and movies, and make their name known as a comedian. According to SNL alum Amy Poehler, the sketch women who came before me, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, Gilda Radner, hung in there in a really misogynistic, aggressive, macho environment, and they just weathered the storm like a news reporter reporting a hurricane. 
and then our generation came in and we were better for it. In 2018, premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival, a documentary, Love Gilda, was produced about her life, including statements about her from her fellow cast members and cast members of the show who came long after her. According to SNL alum Tina Fey, we talk a lot right now about visibility and representation in movies and TV. I can personally attest and I feel comfortable speaking for Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph and Rachel Dratch. When I say that seeing Gilda as a kid, she was so lovely but she was also so authentically herself and so regular in many ways. She was not a piece of casting, but she was who she was on the TV and we all saw that and said, I want to do that and it's possible because I see her doing that. It was an early example for me about how important representation is for everyone in every walk of life. So that is all I have for you today. If you like what you heard today, make sure that you give us a follow and review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Additionally, make sure that you're following us on all the socials at the Scoop W Sam for behind the scenes content and so that you can be kept up to date with anything and everything happening with the Scoop. For February, it's Black History Month and we've been featuring black entertainers, a different person each day on our social media accounts and we plan to do the same for Women's History Month in March. So make sure that you're following us so that you don't miss out on any of those posts. We also have merch. It's a nonprofit shop, so I make nothing from it, but it's just another way to support the show beyond listenership. We have a Valentine's Day design that will only be available for a few more days, but we have a new design coming in March that I know you're going to want, so be on the lookout for that. You can find the link to our merch store in the bio of all of our social media accounts as well. And yeah. See you same time, same place next week for a brand new episode of The Scoop. Talk to you later.